you'll join me in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, this morning we are looking yet again at verses 21 through 26. You can find the text on page 941 in the Blue ESV Bible if you'd like to follow along there. The title of our sermon this morning is Righteousness by Grace. And our keywords for our worshipers and training are grace, sinned, and gift. In John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, there is a scene where Christian's friend that he encountered on his journey named Faithful is telling him about an experience that he had. He was explaining that he was doing great on his journey. He was able to travel without much hindrance. And then he found another path. And so he took that path and he diverted to a way of life which would, in his mind, he believed would please God. But it pleased God not just by trusting God, but it was a mixture of trusting in God's grace, but also living a life of morality that would give God reason to love Him because of what He did, because of what He was doing. And Faithful explained to Christian that for a time, it seemed like everything was going just fine. And he actually felt good about it because he was able to do something and he assumed that God was smiling upon his efforts. But then he encountered another man. And Faithful, explaining this to Christian, said this. He said, but good brother, hear me out. The man overtook me. And with a word and a blow, he knocked me down and laid me for dead. I was able to come to myself again, and I asked him why he did this to me, and he said it was because of my secret inclination to Adam the first. And then he struck me again with another deadly blow, this time to my chest, and it beat me down backward as I lay at his feet as dead before. Again. I was able to come to myself, and I cried out that he might have mercy, but he said, I know not how to show mercy. And again, he knocked me down. Then later in the conversation, Christian tells him, that man that overtook you, it was Moses. He doesn't spare anyone, nor does he know how to show mercy to those who transgress his law. And Faithful said, I know it very well. It was not the first time that he had met with me. It was he that came to me when I dwelt securely at home and that told me that I needed to make the journey. This is one of the greatest examples in all of literature of what God shows us in the Scriptures regarding His law. As we've walked through Paul's letter to the Romans, we've been shown time and time again that not only are we transgressors of God's law, but we are also a people who cannot fulfill God's law in any way, that we might earn something, that we might gain something in the eyes of God. And what Bunyan shows us in this character of faithful is that when we make attempts at gaining something or earning something in God's eyes as Christians, the law of God is there to beat us back, to remind us yet again that it is nothing that I have done, it is nothing that I can do that will give me my standing upright on two feet before 
the judge of all the universe. Every time I try to stand on my own, Moses appears, reminds me of the law, knocks me down again as if I were dead. Whenever faithful began to believe that God was gracious to him because of anything that he himself had done or because of something he assumed that he himself could accomplish, he was beat to death. He was brought low. And as we've now said over and over again, Paul has brought us very low in the book of Romans. But last week, we began to look at the great turn. We began to look at this transition away from our disposition, our inclination toward Adam the first, to see now the glory of the person and work of Adam the second. You see, if you know the story, you know that faithful continues. And he says that someone else came along at the right moment. And Christian asked who it was, and faithful responded, I did not know him first, but as he went by, I perceived the holes in his hands and his side. Then I concluded that he was our Lord. So I went up the hill. He was rescued from the constraints of the law and law-keeping by the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And this is what Paul has begun to show us. That yes, we are dreadfully sinful and depraved, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. And in this great passage, Paul gives us the essence. He gives us the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And remember, last week we considered that the righteousness of God has been manifested by faith alone. And so this morning, as we look at the righteousness of God, we will look at it as it is manifest by grace alone. It is only in God's gracious disposition toward us that while we are rightfully beat down and left for dead by the law of God, that Jesus would come by as our rescue and pull us up to our feet that we might have a way to stand upon His righteousness alone. So let's read our text again this morning that we can be familiar with the context beginning in verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus." And we're spending several weeks on this passage. And as I said last week, it was this passage that the great reformer Martin Luther said was at the center of the book of Romans and indeed the central and most important message in all of Scripture. And really, we see four of the five solas of the Reformation that are present here, and the fifth one can sort of be applied. That's scripture alone is the authority, because we're looking at these verses and benefiting from that authority 
in our lives and our understanding of what God has done. And so we see the solas of the Reformation here in this text. So the first thing we're going to look at is this very essential primary doctrinal truth that Paul is showing us, namely that your justification is by God's grace alone. As they've reminded us for weeks now, Paul's constant drumbeat has been to show us that we are a sinful people, that we have transgressed God's law in every way imaginable, that we have thought highly of ourselves, we have operated in self-righteousness, we have depended on our own works, we have depended on our own finite wisdom, our own finite abilities, our own finite love, instead of resting in the infinite wisdom, the infinite power, the infinite love of God. And, and Paul gives us a grand summary statement here of everything he wrote in chapters 1 and 2. And you know this, verse 23, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You see, it's not just that we've broken God's law, as bad as that is. No, we've fallen short of God's glory. This is our very calling in life. This is our very purpose in life. You may know the answer to the catechism question. What is the chief end of man? What is man's purpose? Why do we live? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. You see, this is our purpose of living, to bring glory to God. And yet Paul tells us here that we don't bring glory to God. We fall short of bringing glory to God. We have defaced His image in us. It has been cracked and broken by us in our sin. Remember, Paul showed us the formula. The one who does the things written in the law perfectly will live. If you keep the whole law, if you do it throughout the tenure of your life and you do it perfectly without a single sin, you will have life. And yet Paul showed us, while that is something that could be done, it really can't be done because you are born in sin. Your nature is sinful and therefore nobody can fulfill this requirement. You must have a righteousness, as Jesus explained, that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. If you have that, then you will live. You must love your neighbor as yourself. And if you do it perfectly, you will live. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength perfectly. And if you do that, you will live. But here's the problem. At some point, we have it in our minds that maybe, just maybe, we can do something. We can make it work. We can, we can clear this massive chasm between who we are and get to the other side of who we must be, and then we can stand righteously before God. But we always fall short. So we play this game where we're doing, I've called it before, suicidal pole vaulting. I stand on one side as a sinner, and way over on the other side, I can see who I must be as defined by the law of God. And that is perfection. In between me and the other side is this massive chasm far greater than anything you could imagine. But because of my self-will, because of my dependence upon my finite self, <coughs> I think that I could probably make it over there. So I get a long pull 
and I back up, and I get, a, I get a fast running start. And as soon as I stick that in the ground and I launch, I begin to fall to the bottom of the chasm. I'm not even close to the other side. And then, because I'm still finding every opportunity to justify myself, I get up, I dust myself off, I climb to the top, and I try to do it all over again. And again, and again, and again. You see, the law is there before us, and it it really provokes us. It provokes us to jump. It says, go ahead and jump. See if you can make it. And then we fall. We fall far short of the glory of God. And then that failure is a good thing, because it is only then when we are at the bottom of the chasm nearly dead, as faithful was, that we're able to finally understand some basic truths about ourselves and about the gospel that we need, this great need that we have outside of ourselves. I could never learn about myself and my need when I'm trying to make this jump. I have too high a view of myself when I think I can launch across the chasm I have to be low so that I can feel the full brunt of being told I have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. So Paul has given us the basic job description of God's law. It reveals to us that we are not God. And if we were to be able to fulfill the law, we would be like God. And so brothers and sisters, this is a death sentence for the old Adam who has lived within all of us. The old man, the old woman who has said, I'm a pretty good person, and yet continues to fall to the bottom of the chasm. That old man, that old woman needs to be at the bottom. That old man, that old woman needs to cry out, who will deliver me? It's then, in our time of greatest desperation, that the law functions to kick us out of this endless audition to become our own personal saviors. The law exposes the lie behind the law of Satan. Remember what Satan said? If you eat of this tree, you will be like God. The law shows us the impossible task before us. And so Paul brings us hope. Remember we saw last week at the beginning of verse 21, he says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Moses has beat us down again and again and again, but now, now Paul is urging us to understand what we saw last week, that righteousness is only through faith in Jesus Christ. We are justified because we have redemption, because Jesus Christ is our propitiation. You see that in verse 25, and we'll look at that more next time as well. But He is our mercy seat before us in whom the full wrath of God is reserved for His people, and it is all satisfied. It's been a few years ago now, a lot of years ago now, I remember Russ Jenkins and I were studying propitiation together before we were being ordained, and he gave me a good way to think about this. He said, we think about this as propitiation talks about the sacrifice that satisfies. I like that. It's easy to remember, and that's what that word means. That's what Paul is saying here. Christ is the sacrifice 
that satisfies God's wrath against our sin. But how? And that's really where Paul is driving. Okay, it's by faith, and it's because Christ satisfies the requirement and receives the wrath of God on behalf of sinners like me, but how does that come into my life? And Paul tells us in verse 24, we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And brothers and sisters, this is the heart of the gospel. This is the heart of God stretched out to sinful men and women to bring justification. Do you know the significance of that? This is all legal language here. And what Paul is telling us is that we are as guilty as can be. We have fallen far short of the glory of God in our sin. And yet, because Christ took on God's wrath on our behalf, God graciously justifies us. In other words, our legal record with all of the charges against us is empty, is washed away, is completely clean. And we are declared not guilty because on our behalf, Christ has fulfilled the requirements of the law. Now, God didn't have to do that, but God wanted to do that, and He did it by grace. As Christians, grace is something we we talk about so often. We love God's grace in the gospel, and we should. The grace of God is the greatest reality in all the world, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He lived for us, and He died for us. And now He extends to us the gift of faith that we might trust in Him all by grace alone. It's because of grace that Christ has come. It's because of grace that Christ came and died as a propitiation. That He he was the sacrifice that satisfied the wrath of God. It is because of grace that the gospel is preached. It is because of grace that faith is born in the hearts of God's people. It is because of grace that Christ's righteousness and eternal life and glory are ours to behold forever and ever. Grace, grace, God's grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. It's an overwhelmingly glorious reality that God is gracious to people like us. And I mentioned it last week, we so often sing, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. I wonder how often, though, we really consider just how amazing God's grace truly is in our lives and whether or not we live accordingly. Brothers and sisters, is God's grace still amazing to you like it was when God first made you a new creation in Christ? Do you still go before God with awe and thankfulness because of God's amazing grace in your life? Or is it something that has ceased to be amazing because as we began to see over and over again through through this letter, we see that our tendency, our want, our desire is to seek our own status before God, partly in grace, partly in ourselves like faithful tried to do in the Pilgrim's Progress. We have the audacity to try and smuggle our own works, our own faithfulness, our own sanctification into the kingdom of God. 
It is, as Sinclair Ferguson describes it, as if we are producing our own fatal elixir. We're mixing who we are with what we have done and how far we have gone and all the ways we have been fruitful and all the great things that others think about us. And we we mix it all together and we drink that elixir and the amazing and the amazement of God's grace begins to disappear and we become content to live on less than amazing grace. We're content to live on common grace that is no more available to you as a Christian than it is to anyone else living in this world. You see, it's, it's as if you have the option to go skiing in the Swiss Alps any day of the year, or you can find the biggest hill you can find in Effingham County, Georgia, where it snows every 20 years. You can go to Bora Bora for three months, or you can go spend an hour at Tybee Island. You can play golf in Des Moines, Iowa, or you can play at Augusta National right now, the week before the Masters. This is what it's like. We can have the absolute greatest experience of God's amazing grace, but when we drink this toxic elixir that we have made, we just convince ourselves that the experience is just good enough. I know all this, all, everything else is offered to me, but I, it's fine. It's enough. Our joy becomes lukewarm. Our excitement for worship wanes, and we just add it to our chore list. Our evangelistic zeal evaporates. Our love for the church comes, becomes unremarkable. And, and we water down the amazement of God's glorious grace. We have to remember that when we, when we were saved by God, we, we were there like the prodigal son, empty-handed, nothing at all to offer, downtrodden, mindful of just how far short we have fallen of God's glory. We were needy, we were spiritually bankrupt, we were blind, we were empty. It was then that we recognized just how truly amazing God's grace is. But in time, that changes, doesn't it? We're fickle, aren't we? We came to God as the younger brother, but slowly we began in our lives to look a lot more like the older brother. And in time, we say, Lord, I've been serving you all these years. But there isn't any rejoicing in the party in my soul is no longer. What has happened? But Paul goes on to show us the insanity of assuming that grace is not amazing and that we shouldn't continually be amazed by it and thankful for it. When Paul identifies that the grace of God towards you is a free, unmerited gift. Notice verse 24. We are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Paul's continuing his argument to show us that being justified is apart from the law. And by our doing, we can never accomplish our own justification. If the Christian life was just about hearing the commands of God and then responding to the commands in obedience, then on that basis we would say, I have obeyed your law, therefore I should be justified in your sight. So Paul really wants to emphasize this reality. You have not obeyed the law, and yet you have been justified anyway. 
God has been gracious to you. He has given you the grace that He has given you as a gift. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, we get it. (laughs) Paul keeps pressing in on the same thing in the same way. Our pastor keeps coming back to these same themes week after week. Let's get on with it already. But Paul keeps coming back because these are the fundamental things that go deep down into all of our beings. The greatest enemy to our truly grasping the amazingness of God's grace is our depending on something that is supposedly in us. And so the only way that anyone is ever saved by God is His sovereignly electing them. The only way anyone is saved by God is that God would bring them to Himself sovereignly. It is the only way. In fact, there is no other way that could be possible if faith is a gift, if grace is a gift, if justification is a gift. The truth is, so many Christians are agitated by this great doctrine because we all really think we are doing something. We think we are able to do something. And and so if it's even the most minuscule bit of work in us, the tiniest fraction of work in us, we still want to be able to say, look, I did this. This was me. But you didn't do that. You didn't do that at all. It was given to you freely as a gift of God. And so you see, who you are is not determined by what you've done or are doing or will do. It is determined by what God has done for you in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are not your genealogy, you are not your education, your job, your selfless acts of love, your selfish acts of malice and jealousy and hatred. You are God's beloved son or daughter, and by the grace of God, in you, God is well pleased. The beauty and simplicity of the gospel is what is most needed in all of our lives, but it is also the most difficult thing in the world to believe. But brethren, it is simple enough that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It is only when I can grasp this and wrap both of my arms around this great truth that there is an amazing release from the prison of looking at myself and what I have done and what I am doing as opposed to looking at who I am or can be as a beloved child of God in Jesus Christ. So instead of me understanding myself as what I have done or what I think, what I am doing or, or thinking about doing or what I, what I think will happen in my life or won't, I, I can understand it as what Christ has done, what Christ is doing, what Christ will do. And, and herein lies the fundamental formula for all of us as we think about our own assurance in the gospel. Do you struggle with assurance in your salvation? I know some of you do. We've talked about it before. So listen to this. The basis of who I am and what God has done for me is found in God's Word. This is, the Bible is a means of grace. This is the primary way that God's grace comes into our lives. It is through His Word. And that establishes the basis of who I am and what God has done for me. Now, something happens 
by the power of the Holy Spirit when I humbly submit to the basis of God's Word. And that which is created through God's Word in me is faith. And it is freely given as a gift by God's grace. And then the result of that is that we will have practical fruit or Christian works in our lives. Now, our tendency is to go to the end of that formula and always focus our attention on our practical fruit, on our works, instead of going to the beginning of that formula and seeing that the basis of our salvation is not our practical fruit, but is rather what God has proclaimed to be true in His Word about us in relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because I want to tell you, you will not, if you look at practical fruit in your life long enough, you will not find evidence that assures you of your salvation. And we become very critical. We look at every work in every way, and in time there is this dwindling effect. We no longer have assurance. In fact, we become more and more unsettled because we can no longer answer the question, what does God think about me? So often, the only answer we can provide is, I think he's mad at me. I think he's displeased with me. I think he regrets ever saving me in the first place. And so you see, the anchor of your salvation is not the practical fruit of your faith, because today might be good and tomorrow might be terrible in terms of practical spiritual fruit. The anchor of your salvation is in this truth, that Jesus Christ has come and has lived and has died in your place, and by grace, God has saved you and made you His, and He will not, will not, never leave you nor forsake you. That is where we anchor our faith. That even though today might not be a great day for me spiritually, I am yet a child of God, and He loves me as much today as He did the day He saved me, and as much as He will in 10 million years in glory. We must anchor our faith in the truth that God has given us in His Word, which assures us that God is still gracious, that God still loves you, and God still accepts you as His child. Now, this whole idea of grace as a free gift that is not dependent upon our works can really make us nervous as Christians. We wonder, perhaps, does this then mean that we can live however we want? It seems like maybe that's the case, right? Well, Paul faced that same accusation as he was preaching about the free grace of God. Paul, Paul was asked, if you, if you keep telling people that their salvation is in no way dependent on them, and that all of it from faith to grace to justification is a gift from God that they did not and cannot earn, they are going to live however and in whatever way they please. Listen, if you have never heard preaching that leaves you at least pondering this question, I want to suggest that perhaps... You've never truly heard gospel preaching in its fullest sense because God's grace is so absolutely unmerited and so totally free that it should leave us to think with this grace, it seems that, only, that not only is it free, but I am free. I am free. 
Yes, brothers and sisters, with this amazing grace, you are free indeed. But not free to live however you want, but to live according to the new desires of your transformed heart. One of the amazing things that God does in in changing us is that He changes our hearts. He gives us new desires as Christians, new longings, new hopes, new goals, new objectives in life. And so sure, we can say that we are now free to do that which our heart desires. But what does your new heart desire, Christian? To strive for the glory of God. The more we take in God's grace through the means which He has given us, the more our desires are conformed to His. As we read His Word, as we listen to His Word, as it is, as it is preached, as it is, as it is read, as we engage with the Lord in communion through prayer, through corporate worship, through our singing, as we come to the ordinances, the Lord's Supper and baptism, all of these are means that God has provided that His grace would come into our lives more and more and more that we would be conformed all the more to Him. Now, I want to make a point here that I think is very important for us to understand So often I hear Christians say that God is gracious to us because Christ died for us. There's a problem with that, and I hope that you hear it. It sounds as though what is being said is God is only gracious to you on the basis of what Christ has accomplished. But I, I, can, I hope you can see from the Scriptures that the overwhelming proclamation of the Bible is that Christ died for us because God is gracious to us. It makes all the difference in the world. It's not as though Jesus had to persuade an unwilling God to do something for us, and it's only because of that that He took notice of me or took notice of you at all. No, do you remember what John 3.16 says? For God so loved the world that... He gave His only begotten Son. You see, one follows the other. It was because of His love, it was because of His grace that He gave His Son. It wasn't that He gave His Son so now He could start loving His people. He could start loving this world. God's grace toward us does not begin at the cross, you see. It comes to its full consummation at the cross. Your salvation is not just the priority of Jesus, but it is the sovereign disposition of a gracious God in the whole of the Trinity. Grace is not a thing that is external to God. It's not as though He's passing it on to Jesus so Jesus can pass it on to you. No, if God is gracious to you, He's gracious to you from the very center of His being because God is grace. And, and the God who is gracious to us in this way gives it to us as a free gift. There's no tit for tat when it comes to the grace of God. I always laugh at the thought, one time I received a gift and I sent a thank you card to the person who gave me the gift. But then a few weeks later, I got a card back in the mail that was thanking me for sending them a thank you card. 
And at that point, I sort of wondered if I now had this, uh, this obligation imposed on me to keep this up. But you see, we all have that mentality, right? If you're, if you're a gift-giving family at Christmas time, you're about to struggle with this very thing. Oh, I know that my great-uncle George is going to give me a little gift. I don't even know him, but I better get him something too. Right? We want everything to be even. You did this for me, so I need to do this for you. You did your part, I will do my part. We so desperately want to be those people who are always able to look at our situation with all of our relationships and say everything is even, everything is level. And so we so desperately want that to be the case with our salvation. But it's not. Brothers and sisters, nothing at all, nothing in all the universe can compensate the Father for the death of His Son. Nothing. You cannot afford your salvation. It is an absolute free gift. And all I can do is say, Father, I have have sinned against heaven in your sight, and I need your Son. That's all we can do. That's all we must do. And as the cost of that begins to dawn on us, the lavishness of grace becomes intolerable to our sinful hearts. But as the freeness of His grace falls on us, the instinct to do something to earn our salvation is drowned out in an ocean of God's mercy. Well, finally, Paul shows us in our text that God's grace toward you is consistent with His divine righteousness. God has made propitiation to show His righteousness. God has given us a sacrifice to satisfy His divine wrath and judgment against sin. He has proven His righteousness. This is related to the old covenant sacrificial system. And as we move into Romans further, we're going to be dealing more and more with the significance of how the old covenant system is worked out and how Paul is going to reference that in terms of our own salvation. But we can see here that this is the reality of every true believer. Every true believer in the Old Covenant would have understood that bulls and goats were not bearing the judgment of God against human sin. They weren't. They weren't big enough. They weren't good enough. The bulls and goats were having their blood shed to roll everything over to another year. Another year, another year. It's like a forbearance plan. Just one more year, and then eventually we will get there, and it will be paid. So God was passing over former sins, but He wasn't overlooking them. They still had to be paid for, and they were paid for eventually. But it was all in waiting for the day of the Lord Jesus Christ to be crucified. The bulls, the goats, the ram, their blood was not, sac- it was not satisfactory. It was just a placeholder. But one day, the final Savior would come, and He would be the wrath-bearing substitute for all of the sins of all of God's people. God was revealing His righteousness in the Old Covenant by saying, for now, look at these animal sacrifices and see how they are dying because of you. 
but look through what this is representing and find the one who is dying on Calvary's cross to put an end to all of this. Jesus becomes the propitiation, and so the people of God are no longer placing their hands on an animal because the God of the universe has poured his judgment out on his Son, whose blood was shed once and for all for all of his people. God's divine judgment of His Son is the most glorious and gracious thing that God has done for us. Because of His great love for us, Christ died for us. Do you think often about that? He died for you. Jesus Christ died for you. Freely. That's what I need. That's what you need. Have you tasted the grace of God that is greater than all of your sins? John calls it grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. That's what we need. We need to set our eyes, our hope, our trust in a Savior who came into this world from heaven and He lived as a man and He fulfilled the law of God perfectly. The civil law, the ceremonial law, the moral law of God fulfilled in Christ perfectly so that He could be an acceptable sacrifice to satisfy the wrath of God on the cross of Calvary. And so Christ died in the place of sinners, receiving on Himself the penalty that is due to all of us because of our guilt and sin, because we have fallen far short of the glory of God And yet he took that upon himself that he would be buried in the grave for three days to be raised up again on the third day that we have the hope of everlasting life that we might live and dwell with him forever and ever. Christ lived for us in our place. Christ died for us in our place. Christ was risen from the dead so that we can live with him forever in his place. What a great reality. And this friends, if you do not know Christ, is offered to you by faith. This is a free gift. And so we sing a song, we say, without money, without money, come to Jesus Christ and buy. There's nothing you can offer except your empty hands and your humble heart to say, God, I need your grace in my life that I might have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there's nothing to fear. There's nothing to fear in a life of a Christian because we look beyond this life, we look to the life to come that was secured for us and what Christ has done. That's what we need. We don't come to God and ask if we can do a deal. I worked hard, I did my best, I tried to be a good person. It won't get you very far. We need grace upon grace upon grace. And God will graciously and freely give it to you.